crossroads of empires, battleground of the ages, city of peace and of war. This is Jerusalem, where archaeology uncovers the empires of yesterday, where prophecy decodes the headlines of today. This is where history and prophecy come alive. This is Watch Jerusalem. Hello and welcome to Watch Jerusalem. I'm your host, Brink Naktagal. Thank you very much for listening. I'm coming to you today from Jerusalem, Israel, as per usual. Today, I had the chance to go down to the city of David, the ancient city of Jerusalem, where I was led on a tour uh, by Ze'ev Orenstein. He is the Director for International Affairs of the City of David Foundation, which is the, uh, the, the group that does run the whole tourist site there, that are heavily involved in all the excavations in the city of David as well. And this man actually got to had the, have the privilege of touring around the Secretary of State of the United States, Mr. Mike Pompeo, a week and a half ago. And uh, today he spent three hours with me, so I appreciate that very much uh, from him. He was very gracious to, to show me around some things that I hadn't seen as yet, uh, some of the more recent excavations uh, as well. Uh, and so I've got an interview of, uh, well, I took an interview with him just for about 10, 10 12 minutes uh, at the end of our tour uh, that I'd like to play for you towards the end of today's program. That is, again, with Zev Orenstein, Director of International Relations uh, or International Affairs at the City of David Foundation. But before we get to that, I want to talk about some of the things we saw, and particularly, particular, in particular, the, the, the structures around the Gihon Spring. If you've been listening to this program for any length of time, you know that the Gihon Spring is incredibly important in biblical history, and also uh, history outside the biblical times for Jerusalem, because it is the only perennial water source in Jerusalem. Uh, within five miles. This is a spring that does run all year round. And although I wouldn't drink the water right now, uh, it has been the life source of Jerusalem for for so long. And it is mentioned in the biblical narrative as well, as we'll get to. But just before we, we do read about how the Gihon Spring features in the Bible, I figured it would be good just to give you a little bit of history about and, and geography and geology about the spring itself. This is a spring today that functions differently than it functioned anciently. And we know that both by some of the symbolism that the Bible talks about, how the Gihon Spring was an intermittent spring where it gushed forth uh, and then it would stop. And then hours later or time later, it would come forth again. Um, This is something that was testified to by an archaeologist about 100 years ago when he came to the Gihon Spring. Now, if if you've been to the Gihon Spring, which if you've walked through Hezekiah's Tunnel, which I really do think is probably the best thing to do in Jerusalem, is to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel, that tunnel, which is flowing with water, it flows with water, of course, from the Gihon Spring. So the very at the very beginning of the Gihon Spring, or beginning of Hezekiah's Tunnel, you actually will walk through the spring chamber and then some more ancient tunnels before you get to the tunnel that Hezekiah himself made 2,700 years ago. And this isn't make-believe. Uh, now, these are real things that happen to real people that are recorded both in the Bible and that archaeology has, is... is um, uh, bringing back up again, bringing back to life these histories from the Bible. And so uh, visiting this location again 
uh, today just really did bring the history of the Bible to life uh, about what happened around this Gihon Spring. And so this spring today, it will bubble up, well, it will come up all the time, and then it runs uh, consistently uh, all the way through to the bottom of the city of David, where the Siloam Pool is today, where anciently it would it would empty out into the Siloam Pool. Now today, on average, about 0.22 meters cubed per second comes out of the Gihon Spring. This is 349 gallons per minute. This is on a regular year with regular rainfall in Jerusalem, and that is 1,320 liters per minute. And if you were going to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool with the water from the Gihon Spring on a regular year, <clears throat> it would take about 30 hours. That's not long. 30 hours, day, day and a bit, uh, to, to fill an Olympic-sized swimming pool from the water from the Gihon Spring. Now, this is what uh, Vincent wrote. He, again, is an excavator here. He excavated with Parker. We saw some of the fruits of his excavations uh, earlier on today. And this is what he wrote back in 1911 about the Gihon Spring. He said, The water emerges accompanied by loud ec- a loud echo noise. I guess this is translated from French. Uh, if you've ever tried to read some of what Vincent wrote, because Parker is the person that was more... Uh, more famous, he didn't write much down. And so Vincent is the one that wrote everything, and he wrote his reports in French. And so I've spent a lot of time with uh, Google Translate trying to uh, trying to get uh, some of that information from his 100-year-old excavations. And it seems like this uh, quote into English uh, isn't that good either. But you get the gist. This is him from 1911. He said, Water emerges accompanied by a loud echoing noise heard one to two minutes before the water rises, that is, rises up in the spring, through the spring, and during the whole period of the strongest flow. Water rushed out unexpectedly every two or three hours, running for about 12 or 15 minutes at a time. And so this is, doesn't happen today, but he saw it every two or three hours. You would have a gush of water. You would it'd sound by, come with an echo or gurgling sound, I suppose. And uh, that would come forth and for, run about 12 to 15 minutes. He timed it and then it would be gone. Gone for two or three hours before it would return. Now today, as I said, it doesn't happen anymore. And and the people that wrote this study, this is a Hebrew University study, characterization of the hydrogeology of the sacred Gihon Spring, Jerusalem, a deteriorating urban cast spring. This was published back in 2010. I'll leave a link for for you in the show notes of today's program if you would like to go ahead uh, and read it. It's pretty hard to understand unless you're into springs and water. In geology, which you might be, <laughs> but it, it is difficult uh, to read because it's just not for a general audience. However, there are some parts that I found that I could uh, discern what they was talking about, and a couple of parts were very interesting. One related to how it was, the spring was 100 years ago, and how it would have been during biblical times as well, like what Vincent saw. And what they assume is the reason of why it is no longer like that today. And what they said is that there is so much more water that goes into the ground today in Jerusalem that would have happened anciently, which would then end up, which would be part of the catchment system that would go into the aquifer, that would go down into the Gihon Spring. Uh, They estimate that the seven and a half uh, square kilometers to the north and west, 
So including the Temple Mount area all the way through, including much past the old city, going far into the north of Jerusalem, going across uh, the out of the old city towards along Jaffa Street. If you head, keep on heading that, heading down to the, the gates of the city, all the way to the Knesset, there's a huge water catchment area there where all the water that goes into the ground is going to eventually, eventually find its way into some type of catchment aquifer underground that will eventually go into the Gihon Spring. Now, anciently, you just had rainfall that's going to be dropping in those areas. Now you have masses, you have the rainfall that's the same, similar, and then you also have a massive amount of water that's being pumped into Jerusalem because of the huge population. And a lot of that goes down stormwater drains, goes into the ground, obviously. Um, they've got some statistics here to show just how much water, extra water than is usual, than would have been existing 100 years ago, actually goes into the ground, into the catchment area for the Gihon Spring. And so what you have, therefore, is the 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 t- water tank that's underground, if I could put it that way. There's probably a hose that runs... I'm going to just really be very... Uh, um, simplify this in a big way so you understand what they assume this spring is like is that you've got a big water tank under the ground under the hill somewhere and you have a hose or you know these these uh, a way which the water travels to the Gihon spring that is kind of like a siphon which would actually start out low at the bottom of this big water tank if you like and actually rise up nice and high and then go back down towards where it would come out of the Gihon Spring. And it's kind of like a, an S-bend, I suppose, but it's an S-bend going vertically. And so what you would have is this tank would fill up with water, and as the tank fills up with water, you also have the water that's filling up inside the hose, rising, getting higher and higher and higher, and eventually the tank fills up to a certain height and that it the, the water will start coming out. It's reached the crest of the hose and starts coming out and going through the Gihon Spring. And the gravity of the water that that is pulling, or the force of gravity pulls the water down towards the Gihon Spring, actually drains the rest of the tank. So as water comes out, the tank gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, until the water the water that's in the siphon and the, the tank is emptied. And then that's why anciently, or back a hundred years ago, there would have been a stop for two to three hours while the water in that tank refilled from the ground, up, 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 up. And eventually it gets to the top of the siphon, goes back down. I'll probably, if you are listening to this, you wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. I'm not the best at describing such things. Uh, I will leave a picture of uh, a siphon type caustic uh, uh, spring that the Gihon spring probably is in the show notes so you can see how it used to work anciently. Well, now there's so much water going in that there's just always, the tank is always full. And all that you can rely on to exit the water exiting this tank is is probably what the Gihon Spring is pumping out. Um, it's just continually full, which is why, again, we have this continuous flow. Again, if you've walked through Hezekiah's Tunnel, you don't get to run through in the dry spots, which would be kind of interesting. <laughs> if it still did it as it did it anciently, you would time it and then you would have time to run through a dry tunnel and then get out before the water, hear the gurgling sounds and the water uh, come forth uh, from the Gihon Spring. Anyhow, that's how the spring worked. And as I said, the Bible speaks a lot about the Gihon Spring. 
And I do want to just go through a couple of examples of why the spring or how the spring was important and does feature into the biblical narrative. The reason I want to do this is because one thing that we saw today are a series of rooms, and this will be the lead picture on the on the on the uh, story on Watch Jerusalem. If you're seeing this there, so you can look at what I'm talking about. But there was a, there's a series of rooms that have been discovered just to the north, uh, up the hill a bit from the Gihon Spring, and they have been talked about during Parker's in, excavations and 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 re well fully excavated um, by uh, Ronnie Reich and Ellie Shukron uh, several years ago. And what these rooms reveal is definitely some type of religious uh, function. There's a few of them. There's On one of them, there's these weird carvings on the ground. And those carvings probably have to do, in my opinion, to something uh, of, of maybe a stand to hold on to or to hang up maybe a dead uh, animal that was being used for the sacrifices. And then you also have a standing stone, uh, a matseva, uh, that's close by, which has a religious connotation to it also. You also have a channel in one of the next rooms where you have a raised altar or the bedrock is a little bit raised where you might have had the actual carving up of an animal where the blood would have run out. And you also have an olive press. Now, all of these things, if you even don't even talk about the Bible or bring out the Bible, you would say... There is a religious function here. There are sacrifices going on here by the Gihon Spring, if you found this, even without what the Bible says. Where it gets interesting is where the Bible does describe such function taking place at the Gihon Spring. Now, if we talk about the dating of when this, this, these rooms were in use, it's, it's quite hard because we only, we only have an end date. We only have the date in which they stopped being used, the date in which this area was filled in. Normally in archaeology, in archaeological sites, to date a building or a discovery, uh, you will have the date, if it is a building, you will be able to excavate underneath the floor and you get from all the stuff that you find underneath the floor, pottery or carbon samples, two main things for dating, um, you'll be able to get a date for when that floor was built because none of the stuff under the floor came there after people built the floor, right? So you get the date of when the building was constructed uh, or at least the the latest possible time it could have been constructed uh, from the stuff underneath the floor. And then... Uh, what you'll have, or the earliest time. And then after that, you'll have the living, and then you'll have the stuff that collapsed on the floor, the destruction, or the stuff on the floor. And this will give you a window of time in which you know that people live there. And so when it comes to these rooms, with this religious function around the Gihon Spring, all we have is the stuff that filled them, because they're built into bedrock, unfortunately. (laughs) They're built into bedrock. And so we don't know when they were constructed, we only know that they stopped uh, their function, or they stopped their use at least. They were filled in around the time of King Hezekiah, so 2,700 years ago. These rooms are no longer being used, or no longer functioning, or no longer, perhaps they were left fallow for a while. Um, we will never know. The stuff that's in them is the latest the latest date of the stuff that's in them is from Hezekiah's time, and it was a, a fill, I believe. So these were filled up during Hezekiah's time. So we know that they were built before Hezekiah. So how far before? We don't know. 
but we can go to the Bible and see when an area around the Gihon Spring was in use for religious purposes. Now, we should mention that the earliest remains around the Gihon Spring are from around the time of, of Abraham. Abraham, again, as I, as I mentioned, Abraham came to Jerusalem, Salem as it's called, in Genesis chapter 14. And Melchizedek was, was the priest of the Most High, as it says there. He was also the king of righteousness, king of Salem. And Abraham paid tithes to him, which was very significant. Abraham, the father of the faithful, paying tithes to this individual in Jerusalem. And then if you look at, at the Gihon Spring or where the Gihon Spring is, down from the valley, the Kidron Valley, and if you ripped off all the buildings that are there right now, what they're trying to do actually with the, with the tourist part of this is actually try and recreate what this massive fortification would have looked like, massive building would have looked like around the Gihon Spring. This is a way that it was protected all the way back during Abraham's time. It was protected. And you can see those remains. Before you enter the Gihon Spring, you can see those remains. It's incredibly important. And so uh, Abraham's time is documented around the spring. And so were these rooms built during Abraham's time? These other rooms I'm talking about, Melchizedek's time? Don't know. <laughs> Don't know. I mean, that would be a lot of time. That would be a thousand years for these rooms perhaps to be uh, functioning uh, before Hezekiah came. Uh, that is a long time of use. And, and it, it seems there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that they were functioning during Melchizedek's time. There's not. Um, but we do have history associated to King David in this area um, as documented from the Bible. So I'm not 100% about this, and the city of David doesn't say that they're 100% about this either. But it is certainly interesting that sometime prior to King Hezekiah, you had somebody in this area that was performing a religious function. And what does it say about King David? 2 Samuel chapter 5, incredible, incredibly important chapter. It, it talks about when David conquered Jerusalem. And he conquered Jerusalem, Jerusalem around 1000 BC, sets it up as the capital city for a united Israel and Judah. The first thing he does after capturing the city, and probably in this location, right by the spring, because you can read the other passages or this passage, and it talks about Joab or Yoav, going up by the Tsinor, or by the water tunnel of some sort. We think it is. We think it means that. And him being able to conquer the city from the inside out. And we know that this was a heavily fortified city, and Israel couldn't do it before David until com coming up with this, this technique of getting into the city. But we see there that David's going to conquer it. He calls this area the city of David. And then the next thing he does, he builds a palace. The thing after that, after his palace is built, perhaps even concurrently, he goes and gets the Ark. He makes a mistake on how he should get the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, of course, I'm talking about. This was uh, something that was taken by the Philistines decades earlier. And it was in Kirjath-Jerim or Kirat-Jerim. David goes and gets it. And when he goes and gets it, before he does, he's going to make do something. He's going to do a little bit of renovation work. He's going to do some building, and he's going to do some preparation. Where? Around the Gihon Spring. 2 Samuel chapter 6 talks about this, this, and so does 1 Chronicles 15. I'll read verse 1. And David made him houses in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of, the, ark of God and pitched for it a tent. So he pitched it. Pitched a tent, it says there, some type of temporary dwelling, a temporary place. And then he is going to uh, bring the ark there. 
chapter 16 now, 1 Chronicles 1, uh, 1 Chronicles 16 verse 1 says this, And they brought in the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tent that David pitched for it, and they made, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before God. And when David made an end of the offering, the burnt offering, the peace offerings, he blessed the people. And then you can go on to read there in First Chronicles 16, it, it, it shows us that the tabernacle, which normally housed the ark before the Philistines took it, uh, that was at Gibeon. That wasn't in Jerusalem. But David... When he brings the ark, he decides, let's not bring the ark to Gibeon. Let's not put it in the tabernacle. Let's bring it to the Gihon Spring area in Jerusalem, unify the nation, or at least start to, and he's going to prepare a tent, temporary dwelling for it. Now, it's interesting because these areas that we looked at, um, it, they're carved into bedrock. And if it is the area of, da- of David's place of where he put the ark of the covenant and had these sacrifices... Um, then it could have been that there were coverings that were made out of tent material um, that was more of a temporary nature. Um, but it's, it's, Im- it's impossible to be 100% about this. Nevertheless, it is really, really interesting uh, for sure. So that, that takes place around 1000 BCE. David setting up the ark in a, in, a, in a temporary place by the Gihon Spring. Then we have David build, uh, finishing building his palace, of course. David looking around his palace and saying, wow, this is an absolutely beautiful structure. Why is it that God doesn't have a beautiful permanent structure as well? And he wants to build God a temple. And God tells him, you're not going to build me a temple. You're a man of war, but that's a great idea. Your son's going to do it. Solomon will do it. And so then we get to around the time that uh, Solomon is made king, about 30 years after Uh, Jerusalem is taken by David. And so the Ark of the Covenant has been by the Gihon Spring for some time in this tent that David made. Perhaps these very rooms, or you were a part of where the Ark was, or part of the the worship around the Ark, associated with the Ark. Notice what happens around 970 BCE. David's about to die, 1 Kings chapter 1. And David, King David said, Call Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and they came before him, and they said, Go get Solomon. I'm paraphrasing now. Well, I'll read verse 23. Take with you your servants of the Lord, and cause Solomon my son to ride upon mine own mule, and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, anoint him there king over Israel. And so you had Adonijah trying to be king, and David says, Go get Zadok, go get my son, go down to the Gihon. Anoint my son Solomon there by the Gihon. But notice this, verse 38. So Zadok the priest <clears throat> and Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and the Cherith, Kerithites and Perithites, probably the security guard, the bodyguard of the king, they went down and they caused Solomon to ride upon the king's, upon the king's David's mule and brought him to Gihon. And Zadok the priest took the horn of oil out of the tent and anointed Solomon. Did he just run to Gibeon? Did Zadok run to Gibeon, to the tent or the tabernacle, as other English versions uh, call, uh, used there? No, he didn't. He went into the tent that had, or at least this area of where the ark was, by the Gihon Spring, perhaps with oil that was pressed right there. We could see the olive press there today. And he used that to anoint King Solomon. So the ark is still there right at the time period of King Solomon. And then you've got, going forward, 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 1, 
you have finally the Ark of the Covenant being taken up out of the city of David. It says this, Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes and the princes of the fathers of the houses of the children of Israel unto King Solomon in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal out of the city of David, which is Zion. So this happens around 950, around the time period the temple is built, and you have Solomon taking the Ark out of this area, uh, moving it, and then you have this place, it seems, slowly, at least, falling out of use, or at least we don't know when it fell out. We know it fell out of use 250 years later during Hezekiah's time. But this is interesting. This is very interesting that for around 50 years, the Ark of the Covenant was settled right there before the temple was built, right there around the Gihon Spring. This place holds significance to God. And you can see the remains there to this day from Abraham's time. You can see the remains most likely from King David's time where the Ark of the Covenant sat for a good 50 years or almost 50 years. And we know from prophecy as well that the Gihon Spring is going to be extremely important in the future. This same region, if you go into those final chapters of the book of Ezekiel, which really is just a vision of this temple that we call Ezekiel's temple, the third temple that's going to come uh, and be built, this is going to take up a large space, very large space, far bigger than Solomon's, far bigger than Herod's temple. And you notice in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 47, I think it's chapter 47 and verse 1, Ezekiel actually describes something that's coming out, coming out of the bottom of the temple. He says this, chapter 47, verse 1, And afterward he brought me again, so he's seeing this in a vision, brought me again unto the door of the house, and behold, waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward. And where do they go? What do they do? These are healing waters that are going to come out right of the eastern part of the city. That's going to be included in Ezekiel's temple, right from the area of the Gihon Spring once again. And at first, they're going to come out, and they're going to be the, the height of your knees, and then your waist, a little bit higher and higher, and it's going to become a raging river, and it's going to go all the way down into the Dead Sea and heal the waters of the Dead Sea. There is a lot going on with the Gihon Spring, and there's a lot of spiritual symbolism that is being played out with the Gihon Spring. This spring is going to bring life to the Dead Sea, and as a type of God's Holy Spirit, it's going to bring life also to mankind from that Jerusalem city, which will be here so soon. And that's why it's exciting to go and see the Gihon Spring. That's why it's exciting to walk through Hezekiah's Tunnel to really recognize not just the biblical history that's done there, but what, um, how the Gihon Spring and this area does feature into biblical prophecy, uh, biblical prophecy as well. That's all we're going to cover today. We kind of went through those scriptures pretty fast, but thank you for listening in. Now what we're going to do is just cut through to this interview I did, again, with uh, Zev Orenstein from the City of David Foundation. Uh, thank you very much to Zev if you're listening to this. We appreciate uh, you you're in your support for Watch Jerusalem and also appreciate what the City of David does for Jerusalem and also the world in uh, getting, getting attention uh, to this space, uh, the ancient city of Jerusalem, where lots of attention uh, should be brought uh, brought to. Thank you very much for listening. Here's the interview I did with Zev earlier today. 
I'm here at the City of David with Zev Orenstein, the Director of International Affairs for the City of David Foundation. Thanks very much for giving me a tour. A pleasure to be here. We are on the roof of the City of David Tourist Center overlooking the Kidron Valley. Uh, we have some dogs barking occasionally and maybe some uh, calls to prayer that'll happen. So if that happens, uh, apologies to the listeners, but thank you Zev for uh, taking some time to tour me around. We've just gotten back from looking down by the Gihon Spring uh, the awesome rooms around there, some interesting rooms that we'll talk about on the program as well uh, after this interview. And also we have uh, gone up through the Givati parking lot excavation. He hasn't shown me the Pilgrim Road on this visit because I didn't tell him yet that I, I haven't seen it, but he promises next mm -hmm. time, <laughs> next time that we'll see it. But I'm not the most important person to have uh, been toured by Zev recently. Just a week and a half ago, it was the Secretary of State for the United States, Mr. Michael Pompeo, who came to the City of David by evening. Was it a Wednesday night? Wednesday night. A Wednesday night. Great. And we were talking about this before, but this is one of the most important, I would say, uh, people that you've toured through the area. Sure. It's the first time a Secretary of State of the United States has visited the City of David. Uh, just a little more than two years ago, we had never had in the history of uh, at least modern City of David a sitting U.S. ambassador visit. That changed in October 2018 with David Friedman, U.S. ambassador to Israel visiting. And since then, over the last number of years, we've been privileged to share uh, the City of David with some of the most senior U.S. administration officials who have, corona aside, been, been coming through here on a somewhat regular basis. And it's, it's really special to see when you have the leaders of the most significant country, at least geopolitically, in the world today, that they have such a strong appreciation for Jerusalem, its heritage, its heritage, modern heritage, its biblical heritage, and wanting to uh, see those discoveries and excavations firsthand, not only because of its significance um, biblically, but, but also its significance to the foundations that America is built upon. And, it's not something that you, you have every day, and it's really been an exciting, uh, exciting to have a, a small part in, in sharing it with, with uh, so many people like that. Right, and so you spoke to me earlier about how this administration of the United States uh, really led from the front with, with the ambassador uh, here, and you talked about him being a special individual who really does see this connection between the United States and Israel based on shared history and shared values. I wonder if you can just talk about how you related uh, to me, some of those, uh, well, related to me, how David Friedman does see that America's history is intertwined with what's happening on, on the Hill here, uh, has, I, has happened. I think it's, it's very easy uh, to view Jerusalem uh, specifically through the lens of it being uh, an Israel-centered issue, that if you're pro-Israel, you'll be strong on Jerusalem, uh, you'll support the, the Jewish uh, connection to Jerusalem and so on. But one of the things that I've tried to focus on over the last couple of years is while obviously the, all of that is true, is that it's not only significant to, to the Jewish people. It's not only significant to Israel. And Isaiah talks about Jerusalem being a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, the founding fathers of the United States were biblically anchored people who viewed what they were creating in the United States as in a certain sense a, a new Israel. They were going to a new promised land, very biblically inspired. And therefore, the foundations that America is built upon, the Judeo-Christian heritage, 
has its roots in the Bible, has its roots in Jerusalem, has its roots in the city of David. And therefore, when the United Nations and bodies like UNESCO go and try to rewrite Jerusalem's history, when they try to erase the Jewish and Christian heritage in Jerusalem, whether it be in a place like the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the city of David, and to be able to share with someone like Ambassador Friedman or the Secretary of State and so many others, members of Congress and so on, that when someone tries to deny Jerusalem's biblical heritage, it's not just an attack on Israel. It's not just an attack on the Jewish people. It's an attack on the Judeo-Christian heritage. It's an attack on the very heritage that the United States is established upon. And therefore, this is an issue that should be of concern to uh, anyone who represents America. That I say to, to, to these representatives all the time, I said, you should, you should, you should be strong on Jerusalem and protecting Jerusalem's heritage, not because you're pro-Israel, but because you're pro-America, because you're protecting your identity, your heritage from people who are seeking to uh, carry out what you can call is uh, national identity theft. Right. And, uh, and I think it's a message that, that has resonated uh, certainly over the last few years. And certainly, I mean, it is interesting that at this time when you do have a newfound love from the United States administration for Israel, you have a similar um, denouncing of their own uh, history as well, as you can see with the tearing down of statues and things like that. Um, but in that administration in the U.S., you have a friend that wants to uh, uphold their own national history and one that has found a close relationship with Israel, as you said. And you have the ambassador, you've had the secretary of state. Uh, any chance Mr. Trump's coming? Uh, you know, uh, <laughs> whether he comes as, as president or as a private individual, I believe that uh, one day, and the day will be, I think, sooner rather than later, at least historically speaking, when all leaders of the world are going to uh, want to be in Jerusalem and, and see what is unfolding, both uh, in terms of modern Jerusalem, but, but also what's being uncovered in terms of ancient Jerusalem, which is uh, certainly anyone who has a connection to uh, the biblical heritage of Jerusalem, which is billions of people around the world. And I also include in that uh, uh, Muslims of the region as well, certainly in the wake of the Abraham Accords, is there's an opportunity to share the heritage of, of Jerusalem and what's being unearthed here with whether it's Jewish, Christian, Muslim, people who want to connect with, with 3,000 or even 4,000 plus years of biblical heritage here, you don't have very many places in the world where you can literally walk in the footsteps of the Bible, uh, where you could see that it's not simply a matter of faith, but a matter of fact. And that's something that, that oftentimes when I'm with people who politically may, may come from a different perspective than this current administration or, or, or the Israeli government or whatever it is, and I say, look, we, we, you know, I'm not here to share politics or policy. I said, I'm here to share Jerusalem's heritage. And we should all be able to agree of, of the biblical heritage of Jerusalem, what's happened here over 4,000 years, what should happen to Jerusalem in the future. Uh, you know, there are politicians and they'll discuss things like that. That's not what I get into here in the city of David. Let's all agree, though, that Jerusalem has significance for billions of people. And let's come ourselves to see with our own eyes, touch with our own hands, walk with our own feet, literally in the footsteps of the Bible. And that's something we should all be able to agree upon. And, and you know, we're not there yet, but, but you know, as Isaiah said again, it's a, a house of prayer for all nations. Let's all come to Jerusalem. Let's all celebrate what we share here, which is the, the impact that Jerusalem has had on all of our lives, and, and then find a way together to, to move forward, even if that means sometimes agreeing to disagree in terms of the pol politics, 
but agreeing to agree when it comes to the significance of this place. So individually, you have been in this position for a number of years, almost a decade, I suppose, or working up to that, that in that direction. Um, do you like your job? I don't have a job. Uh, <laughs> I, I would pay to do what I get to do, that I get to wake up in the morning and spend a few hours like someone like yourself uh, or other, other people who I, I get to spend time with, whether when I'm here in Jerusalem or, or when travel is possible, spending some time in other parts of the world sharing the significance of the city of David. It is a uh, it is a privilege and blessing that that every day I uh, I ask God to uh, to one bless my efforts so that I am able to serve Him and His city well, and uh, and and that I just am thankful that somehow I've ended up in a position where I get to do what I do and. Uh, I know that on my own, I'm not capable of, of doing it, but, but hopefully uh, I try to do my best and, and then just pray that, that God does the rest in terms of blessing, blessing me by putting the path before me to, to follow. And uh, the amazing things that have been happening in Jerusalem over the last couple of years and certainly here in the city of David, it's just a, a blessing to, to be uh, a part of it. And there's uh, someone in the U.S., a celebrity, I heard him say recently, his name is Steve Harvey. And he says, uh, a job is what you're paid to do, uh, a calling is what you're made to do. And I feel, at least for this season of my life, that, that I'm called to do what I do in, in Jerusalem. And I'm, I feel like I am one of the richest people in the world. We have in our faith uh, a saying, it comes from uh, what you can call wisdom literature, something called the ethics of the fathers. And it says, who is a rich person? One who is happy with what they have. And when I look at my life, and in particular what I get to do here in the city of David, I must be one of the richest people uh, on the planet to, to be able to do this every day. Well, it certainly is a tremendous spot uh, in, the, in the world to, to be touring and to be able to bring, especially people that make decisions for, for a lot of humanity here to see its importance uh, as well. So I appreciate you uh, touring me today. It's been a wonderful gift. And um, we'll do it again soon. Have to do the Pilgrim Road. Absolutely. The Pilgrimage Road. Uh, literally is going to be walking in the footsteps of, of the Bible. It's, it's not open yet to the public, but, but I, I will say that once in the next couple of years, once you visit the city of David and you're able to walk from the Pool of Siloam up the pilgrimage road coming out by the, the footsteps of the Temple Mount, the Western Wall, the Southern Steps, it is the most significant half mile in the world, uh, I believe, for, for anybody. And it, it's something that needs to be on your bucket list if it's not already. Um, I believe that we finished 2019 with a million people visiting the city of David. I believe uh, within five years from now, we'll have probably close to 10 million people a year who are going to be coming through the city of David in large part uh, to, to visit and walk on the, the pilgrimage road. And uh, I look forward to sharing it with you on your next visit to, to the city of David and, and to your listeners, please God, uh, in the years to come. All right, thank you very much. Thank you.